If you've ever been awake late at night scrolling Google to figure out whether or not that rash is an allergy or a new virus, or you're trying to figure out how to get an appointment with a lactation consultant but you can't find any in your area, and you feel like screaming, oh my goodness, I just need someone to tell me what this is, you are not alone. Motherhood today is really hard, it's hard to get answers, and it's hard to find people to help us. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Oath Care. OathCare is dedicated to changing the way we support new and expecting parents. You shouldn't have to go to Google or Reddit or Facebook forums to try to wade through and find an answer. And you shouldn't have to wait weeks to get a doctor's appointment or spend hundreds of dollars on concierge specialty services. OathCare is pretty cool. They envision a new model of healthcare that's rooted in community, and they want to improve the health of all families. So the way they do that is they provide complete support for mothers experiencing fertility, pregnancy, and pediatric journeys. When you download the app, you will be connected to your own care team. So you get a stage-based specialist, somebody who knows exactly the stage you're in. You get a mental health therapist and a trained parent guide. And they're available in one chat room to answer any and all questions you have seven days a week. Plus, they have additional specialists like sleep consultants and lactation consultants so that if you have a question they don't know how to answer, they'll bring that person in to help you. You'll be matched with a community of other mothers that are also going through those same experiences. Instead of wading through the judgment of hundreds of different online threads, you can go to a place where there are experts that you can trust with the wisdom of other mothers in a kind, positive, safe community. They just launched recently and it is so beautiful. I really love it when our sponsors are such a good fit for our community. I think that people listening are going to love it. So check out the show notes. I'll put the link in there. It's Oath, O-A-T-H, like the Hippocratic Oath. You can download it at oathcare.com or it's available in the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. You can download it and go get the help and the support that you need. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah K. Pack. Jessica Gross is a New York Times opinion writer. Yes, if you've read The Primal Scream or any of those amazing essays on The New York Times, I am delighted to have Jessica Gross as our podcast guest today. She has a new book out called Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. And in this book, she sets out to dismantle 200 years of unrealistic parenting expectations and why motherhood is the way that it is today, specifically in America. If you feel like American motherhood is impossible, or if you're a dad trapped in the system wondering why American parenting is so hard, or you're inside of the parenting conundrum in the world and you want to understand where these ridiculous ideas are coming from, then this book and this interview today is really going to be amazing. She breaks down the ideals and the stories of what mothers and parents are supposed to be and where those ideas come from and why they keep morphing and making their way back into the common lexicon about parenting. I think one of her messages that is so, so important is that there is no one right way to parent. Blanket advice on parenting just really doesn't work because there are so many parents out there doing such a great job given the little help and support that they have and you're figuring it out for the unique individual that you have in front of you. There is no one size fits all when it comes to parenting, especially when you're parenting in the paradigm of absolutely intense and arbitrary and strange and impossible expectation. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dig into your book, which I know is launching right now as we are as we are talking on this podcast, I want to first set the stage by asking to see a bit of a peek behind the curtain. So can you tell us what time did you wake up this morning? What did your morning look like today? So I woke up at seven. That is the time I wake up every weekday and I hate it. I'm not a morning person. And I know that's like, I I know there's some parents out there waking up at five and God bless them. That could not be me. I would be the grumpiest, most horrible person. So this was actually a rather easy morning because we actually remembered to put our kids clothes out the night before. Like I that is my ideal. I wish I always remembered to tell them to do that, but I remember maybe two days out of 10. And so just doing that makes our morning so much easier. So kids got themselves dressed, breakfast, our school is two blocks from our apartment, which is 
amazing, which is why we get to wake up so relatively late. And my older daughter walks to school by herself. My husband took my little one and I have just been working since they left the house at around 8.30. What does it look like to get into work? You have any rituals in terms of getting dressed, right? Might be a ritual in, in this age that we're living in if you're working from home, but how do you move into work during your day? So it really depends on the day, if it's a writing day, if it's a reporting day, or if it is a sort of catch-up reading day. Today was a writing day, and writing days are what I call my gremlin days. So I have not gotten dressed. I have not brushed my teeth. I have not showered. I simply start writing the second my children leave the house and look like a disaster, which is why we are not on uh, video today. Video. <laughs> see my face right now. It is gross. So until the time that I, we are talking at 11, I wrote from 8.30 to 11 and now we are chatting and yeah, so that's that today's a writing day. Today's a writing day. Some days I'll go, if I'm going into the office, it's a completely different thing. It's while the kids are getting ready, I also am getting ready to look presentable and I walk to the subway after I drop them off. I get to the office a little after nine and then I'm there. And then another sort of form of day is I am exercise is just a pivotal aspect of my life in terms of maintaining mental health. I am a pretty anxious person. And if I don't specifically running, I have to run. It's like, I am a toddler and I need to get, you know, when you have your like preschooler and you're like, oh, I didn't run them today. That's why yes. I'm a monster at bedtime. That's me. I need to be run like a toddler to just get it out. And so I don't, not every day, but some days of the week, I am either running outside or doing Orange Theory, which is, I love Orange Theory. It is a cult and I am a happy member of this cult. And I always have to work out in the morning. If I don't work out in the morning, it's not happening. Like yesterday, I... The kids left at 8.30, I got a little work done, then I went to an Orange Theory class, and then I came home and had lunch and worked some more. So that's another sort of type of work from home day that also has a carve out for exercise. How did you come up with these three types of days, the catch-up reading day, the writing, and the reporting? What differentiates those, and how did you develop that for your so own system? It's all based on deadlines. So my column tends to run Wednesdays and Saturdays. And so Monday morning is usually a writing day. And so it's all based on the cycle of writing and publication and when that has to happen within the week. And it's all very sort of time box, time oriented. I'm not someone who misses deadlines because I have the system in place. This is the day that I write. This is the day that I report. The days that I report and catch up on reading and thinking, those are tend to be more flexible days. Those tend to be days where I can exercise. The writing days are the gremlin days where I am just like head down in work. I don't leave the house. I'm just totally focused between 8.30 and then whenever I finish a draft. Yeah. The gremlin concept is such a useful one because I think the tax of looking presentable takes so much time and energy. And even just being on video takes so much time and energy. So being able to permit out and be like, thou shalt not look at me. <laughs> I really appreciate that. No, and it's really the mental space that takes, I feel, especially for women, is underappreciated. Because just thinking about how you're going to present yourself to the world that day to be taken seriously, it's something that happens a lot for me because this is going to sound like a humble brag because now I'm 40, but constantly in my career, I have been treated as someone who's younger than I am, which is not a blessing because I don't get taken seriously. And I've been told that the way I speak, the way I dress is younger seeming than I am, which I have to work against. And I try really hard to work against. And so that is something that is always lurking in the back of my mind as I prepare for professional engagements. It's, am I presenting myself in a way that is going to be taken seriously by people and not dismissed as a girlish in a way that I'm literally a grown woman with two children? I cannot tell you the number of times I've been told that I'm not a grown up. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. And the, uh, the policing of your 
voice, your tone, your style, your aesthetic, everything. There's a quote in the book, I forget who, but it's about the erasure of our, our identity. How much we have to perform and then also erase parts of ourselves in order to be taken seriously is just this constant work that women have to perform on top of the work that we just want to do. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So your book, the book that's coming out, it's your, is it your fourth or fifth book? I think of it as, it's technically my fourth book. I think of it as my third book because my first book was co-written and it was also like a blog to book, just like thing that you buy at Urban Outfitters, which it was super fun to write. I was happy to do it, but I don't think of it as in the same category. So I wrote two novels and this is my first major nonfiction. Yay. So this book screaming on the inside amazing I think a lot of us are screaming on the outside too but that that scream on the inside is so relatable about the unsustainability of modern motherhood you write about this concept of the ideal mother and you spend a significant part of the book exploring the history of motherhood from the early colonial periods and this is the history of American motherhood to all the way through the 1950s, how Freud has affected motherhood, the Donna Reed era, the television era, even how social media has affected these ideals. And yet throughout, there's this persistent story that kind of mutates and transforms no matter what era we're in. So I'm going to read this quote from the book. He said, one thing that has remained consistent, despite the obvious and invisible work that mothers do to keep families and societies together, their contributions have either been insincerely praised, ignored, or actively demonized. Can you talk about what is this idea of the ideal mother? And can you take us through some of the roots of this story that seems to have persisted for hundreds of years? Absolutely. So the ideal mother for millennia, so before America was a gleam in anybody's eye, has always been self-sacrificing, that you put everybody before yourself, and that if you do otherwise, you are transgressing in a major way. And then coming to the more modern era, so colonial America, the division between public and private life was not what it is today. So there, there weren't really cities, there were settlements, mothers and fathers were both in and around the home, they were both helping raise children. And in fact, among Puritans, mothers were not considered intellectually able to teach to educate children, only fathers could be have the theological weight to really teach children, which obviously that has changed a lot. As society modernized, as the Industrial Revolution happened, there became a division between the public sphere and the private sphere, and women got pushed back into the domestic space. But again, the ideal mother and the person who was in the domestic space, that was always a white Christian woman. Women have always worked, immigrant women, Black women have always worked, but they get erased from the vision of ideal motherhood because the ideal mother is someone who is at home. That happened during the Victorian era. So as time goes on in the 20th century, women obviously flooded into the workplace kind of mid-century and up till today. And so that ideal mother vision of someone who is completely self-sacrificing, doing everything at home, that never really went away. We just added more things on top of it. It's, oh, it's fine for you to work, but you better be a like all conquering girl boss and be the ideal worker, which is a coin termed by the gender scholar, Joan Williams. And that means when you're at work, you act like you have no personal life. You act like you have no outside obligations or children. And when you are at home, you are supposed to act like you have no outside obligations to the home. So it's just as time went on, instead of, modernizing the idea of what a mother should be at home, we've just added more expectations of her onto the pile. Yes, you should work and you should be perfect at work. And yes, you should look a certain way. And yes, you should be able to do all of the things perfectly all of the time. And so that sort of brings us up to the modern conception and all of, and why 
a lot of the expectations on mothers feel completely ridiculous and contradictory because there's absolutely no way that one human being can be all of the things all of the time. Yeah, this idea of the ideal worker has no children and no spouse and is available at all times and can work whenever, but then the ideal mother is also available at all times to the children in the home. Like you realize, I think you can see quite quickly that it's a math problem that doesn't work if you're trying to be both a parent and a participant in civil society and economic society in any way. I think there's some other interesting things that you also mentioned about this ideal concept, like the point you mentioned about fathers used to be responsible for the moral kind of upbringing of the child. And then we moved that over to mothers and like parenting becoming something you can succeed or fail at. Yes. also led to this idea that if the child is, doesn't turn out great, it's the mom's fault, right? There's this also ethos of blame. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yes. So I think what should have happened is as life expectancy became longer, so many fewer children died in the 20th century than previously because we started having modern medicine and the germ theory of disease and vaccines. So there was profound infant and maternal mortality before the 20th century. And when you read women's diaries and letters about becoming mothers, they are not worried about how their children are going to turn out. They are simply trying not to die. <laughs> and they are yeah. worried that their children are going to die. And there was this idea that it was beyond your control. It was divine providence. It was in God's hands. And of course, there are certainly people today who still hold those beliefs. And that's neither positive or negative. Those are just people's beliefs. But as those life or death issues became less of the day-to-day -day. and obviously tragedy still happens mothers and babies are not treated well in this country in so many ways but usually what is top of mind for most people when they have children is not like I hope I don't die and I hope my baby doesn't die and so once that happened it moved into the idea that you could control the future outcome of your children. And because the United States is such an individual, an individualistic culture to begin with, when socially we're not doing a lot for people, we just keep piling on more expectations and more like this feeling that you can, that you should be able to control things yourself because society is not going to help you necessarily. So that sort of happened over time, but really started kicking up in the 20th century when parents had more bandwidth almost to, and they had fewer children. That was another sort of major thing. When you had six or seven kids, ex all of the things that were happening to each single one of them, you just couldn't pay as much attention. And so when we had fewer kids, when their health was better, we started just having these other expectations of what mothers should do. It's, oh, you have more time. Instead of doing something in society for that, what you should be doing is putting that all into your children. I think that note about the death rate of children and of mothers in childbirth is so important. Like it's, I forget how many children would die by the age of five. You have it in your book somewhere. If, if you're a mother in that era, if you're a parent in that era, you don't expect your kids to last past age five. A lot of them are going to die. And so what do you think about their future if you don't even know if they'll be around? And how much that change in medicine, that change in, hey, our kids are going to live, they're going to become grownups, like I'm going to live, mm -hmm. shift our psychology and our outlook to thinking about their future and then blaming the mom for all that goes wrong with the child as they get older. Exactly. What? And I mean, one thing that I was so touched by and heartbroken about was there are so many women throughout history who have been demonized as crazy when really they were probably just grieving. So I give the example in the book of Mary Todd Lincoln, who was really trashed in the press as somebody who was mentally unsound. And it was like, yeah, her a bunch of her kids died. And then her husband was murdered in front of her. But yeah, I think she had some other stuff going on, <laughs> including right. like horrible grief. And it's really important to look back at all of these figures with such a, with a 
with an eye to what was actually happening in their lives and how tragic it, it, it was for them in so many ways. Right. And to have some compassion towards it. It's like what living through multiple children dying is not blase. It's no. not like you can read the statistics in a book and be like, oh, the child, like the death rate was higher. But that's not when you actually think about being a human being living through that. It's really yeah. tough. And there's so then we also see, I thought this was a really curious and fascinating point that you brought up. I, my background is in psychology. And so when you wrote about the impact that Freud had on motherhood as we start to get into the 20th century, and you have all these psychoanalysts who are writing about childhood and child development, there's this sentence. You quote this author, Ziv Ziebner. Eisenberg, Eisebner. I don't know how to say their last name, um, but it wasn't a conspiracy. But in post-war America, a handful of psychiatrists looking to make a name for themselves beyond their specialties realized that pregnant women during the baby boom were an easy target. Can you talk about this? Can you explain, like, what? There's the psychoanalyst. What did he have to do with motherhood, and what does that mean for mothers today? So, in the mid-century. Mothers were blamed for basically most of the psychological problems that their children might have. There was this idea pushed forward by Bruno Bettelheim, who has since been unmasked as a complete fraud, but this idea of a refrigerator mother, which is a mother who is too cold and her kids are not attached to her. And that was used as an explanation for why some children had autism. And that was widely accepted that it was your fault for doing something wrong if your child had any sort of psychiatric disorder. It was also seen as morning sickness was seen as neuroses. So it wasn't some sort of biological function that was making you really sick. It was your own discomfort with your femininity. You had some sort of psychological problem with becoming a mother and it was manifesting through your morning sickness. And so that was a very terrible and incorrect idea that was pushed by by, by a handful of psychologists and psychiatrists in the mid-century. And there were other experts who pushed back on. So it wasn't that people were not pushing back on this narrative, but media really picked up on these ideas because the media loved to blame mothers and make them feel terrible about themselves. And so the echo, we still feel the echoes of some of these ideas. And when we feel guilt over being sick during pregnancy, when we feel guilt that, you know, about any of our children's problems, um, a lot, some of that is the residue from these ideas that were so damaging. And so it wasn't just refrigerator mothers who were blamed. You could be blamed for being too cold, but you could also be blamed for being too overbearing and too involved in your children's lives. So according to these psychiatric professionals in the mid-century, it was like you had to walk this perfectly straight line between not too cold, but not too overbearing and don't get sick when you're pregnant because that's your fault too. So it was really, there's a line that I quote from Edward Dolnick, who is a journalist and he wrote about psychiatry and psychology in the mid-century. And let me just find it because it's so perfectly describes what was happening. Like unwary tourists caught in a gang fight, these unfortunate parents happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. For mothers especially, to live in America in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s was to stand convicted. Perfect quote, and it's a horrible <laughs> it's <really> sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It does feel like you're constantly being stand convicted for and blamed for so many different problems. And it's so interesting because in a culture with such an individualistic personal responsibility ethos, it really feels like the ones abdicating personal responsibility are, it's like our government institutions, our civic infrastructure. You know, it's going to be far easier to blame the moms than it will be to actually look at what we might do to solve this or support this or change this. Exactly. It's so much less work to just blame moms than to get it together to do paid leave. <laughs> and it's so much cheaper. Blaming moms is free. Paying for paid leave, that costs money and effort and time. <laughs> oh, 
and like common sense. Don't get me started on the economic argument of paid leave either, because I'm like, this is going to actually save you money. If we, if you want to talk about the math, let's talk about the math. If you can't tell, I really like math. No, I feel that it just drives me completely bananas. I've written about it every which way, the economic argument, the biological argument, the psychological. And what drives me actually the most crazy is that the majority, the vast majority of Americans support paid leave, regardless of political affiliation. The idea that parents should be able to bond with a new child in their home, I think is a pretty unassailable notion. It's not controversial. It's not controversial. No, it is not controversial. We just can't right? get like it. just can't get it done. And then yeah, and it and for dads too, it's so hard because then they compete with each other and they don't want to look weak. But if you ask dads, they also want paid leave and yes. time with their eighty-two percent of them. Something outrageously supportive. Mm-hmm. So dads want this. We just don't take it because we're afraid of what other dads will think, except actually they want to take it too. So this leads me into another question I have for you because you have written about it from every single angle. You have talked about this. You've written articles about how mothers are screaming and like, why isn't anyone listening? What is your sense about whether or not the needle has moved on people listening because it feels like smart creative talkative people have been talking about this for years we have a history of people writing about this and talking about it and yet I sometimes fall into frustration and despair because I feel like nothing is changing do you think that especially over the course of the pandemic has what's changed in terms of who's listening or who's talking about this So I think there has been incremental change over the past several decades. We just, it's not going to make the cover of the New York Times that Maryland passed paid family leave, which they did in the past couple Mm -hmm. years. So I was just thinking every, because I follow it so intimately, every week there is a positive story about forward movement on all of these issues. Much of it is at the state level. So it's, oh, if you don't live in New Mexico, you're probably not going to hear about the fact that this week, New Mexico just passed a huge bill that's going to pay childcare providers a lot more money. You wouldn't hear about that. So I think part of it is more of a complaint with the sclerosis of our federal government. The federal government's not doing a lot of things for a lot of people right now (laughs) because gridlock and there's so many reasons Congress is not working the way that Congress is supposed to work. And that's a whole other topic for another time. And I think attitudinally, we are going to see a lot more change in the next 10 or 20 years as Gen X and millennials become leaders in major companies. The people who tend to be the heads of companies now are men in their 60s, 50s and 60s who probably were never the primary caretakers for children. And so they didn't, they just even if they can have some sort of awareness of the lives of the people, most of the people who work for them, they just can't empathize on a deep enough level to change policies. But I think as the younger generation who is more involved, how more men are taking up the mantle, I think that change will happen. It's just not going to happen quickly or uniformly in every place. But it's not even something that breaks down necessarily among partisan lines. I think a lot about the fact that a state, states like Oklahoma and Nebraska, which are red states, have done a ton for childcare and universal pre-K. And so it's just so many people want these things. Political and institutional change just takes a lot of time. And again, as I talk a lot about in the book, the systems were, were built for dads to work and for moms to stay home and for heterosexual couples in a nuclear family. And so I don't think that the systems are going to get dismantled, but it's going to just take time for them to acknowledge the fact that most, that the vast majority of people don't live that way. Okay. There are a couple of points in here that I want to follow up on. I want to put a pin in the nuclear family versus what families actually look like. I want to make sure to ask you about that. And this idea that It may not happen at the federal level, but there is incremental good news happening at the state level. How do you maintain a pulse on that? Because I also see things like Idaho decided not to spend any of the federal monies on like childcare. And I just am so disappointed. It's like literally they finally passed money to give to you and then you didn't even give it to the moms. How do you personally keep a pulse on that and understand 
I despair constantly all the time. I'm dispirited. But the way that I keep up with it is I think about all the activists and parents I've interviewed over the course of the past 10 years who are working towards this and they are tireless. Like a despair is not productive. And just know and just as sort of like a practical matter, my brain is broken by the internet. So I'm constantly looking at Twitter, I'm looking at Instagram, I'm looking at every place where one could possibly get news I felt I the only reason I'm sad that Twitter might go away is because I have curated so many people to follow who cover these topics and so I'm constantly kept abreast of all of these issues because I've spent years following people who cover it so right. that I will be super sad if Twitter goes away because then I will not be able to keep first I used to do it on Google Reader RIP Google Reader it was a great service. I'm so sad that they did away with it. Feedly is just not as good. So yeah, as a practical matter, I'm just reading the internet constantly to the detriment of my own brain. Yes. Yeah. The sleep, The for me, it's like the spasms of not being able to think in a straight line. Oh, so yeah. checking and the impulsivity. It's a chat. This is a, that's a topic for a, a, another episode of the podcast, like a big, several episodes. So it doesn't occur to you to just like casually on the side, rebuild what you built on Twitter somewhere else. No big deal. Second job. But have, but more seriously, have you thought about what that's going to look like to create a different network of people covering parenting and gender and motherhood? No, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have Instagram, but it's not the same because people aren't, it's not text-based, right? I want to read the articles. I want to know. I hope some brilliant engineer is out here like thinking of some sort of um, service because I can't read, I cannot read the entire internet every day. I need someone to curate it for me. And that's what Twitter is a function of Twitter for me. I think we spend so much time talking about the cesspool of responses rather than I follow tons of sociologists and psychologists and people and researchers who publish, who share their research on Twitter. Then there's no one place. There's no clearinghouse for that. Otherwise, no, I haven't. I don't know what I'm going to do. I will figure it out. I will hopefully talk to other smart journalists who have thought through what they will do when they don't have that sort of curation aspect of Twitter anymore. Yeah, it's been great for that. And yeah, I think it's, we spend too much time talking about the monstrous negative aspects, which of course have affected me as well as every journalist I know. It's disgusting, but I would be off it if it didn't also provide utility for me. That's right. It's not black or white. So many people can think of this as a binary and really there's like huge negatives. And by the the disgusting side, do you mean the trolls, the negative comments? Do you mean the yes. psychological addiction? More trolls without getting too deep into it. Like I've just, every prominent journalist I know has had threats and just horrible gender and I'm Jewish, anti-Semitic. It's not, I don't enjoy it. <laughs> I don't enjoy that. No, not only do you not enjoy it, it's damaging and it's endangering and scary and awful. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's unfortunately occupational hazard at this. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I accept it as part of the unfortunate downside of profession. I am very blessed to be a part of. So it's what it is at this point. I, Yeah speechless because part of this is so gendered and it's along so many different lines but I remember talking to a friend of mine and he was a man and I was like oh no I don't check the other inbox and he goes what do you mean what don't you miss a bunch of messages I was like yes I don't look there (laughs) and we ended up in this big long discussion of like how you filter things out and like what keywords are broken and then I just I said you can open it go look have fun. And they're like, I had no idea this was happening. And I was like, that is also part of the problem. Yeah. But to talk about it is to just invite further abuse. Like it has, correct. so it's a lose-lose situation to me because it, it, I have often thought about sharing sort of the scariest and worst aspects of what I've encountered. And it's just like, who would this benefit? The people who already experiencing know it's happening. The services themselves don't seem to care to do anything about it. And it will just get more of these monsters in my inbox and I don't need that in my life. I have kids. I don't want to yeah, like, it's like, thank you next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I applaud anyone who is willing to share their stories about this, but I don't, I just don't have it in me. Yep. 
So the only thing I will invite for listeners is one of the kind of puzzles that Jessica has brought up is how do you curate and how do you create a space where journalists can find information? Think the skim for motherhood or what would it look like? Because my audience is so many entrepreneurs, so many founders, they like building things. So I'm just going to put a pin in that for everyone listening. Who is building this? Okay. I want to talk about how the American family is changing because one of the things that you mentioned, and one of the things that's so persistent is this narrative that the traditional family, I'm going to use air quotes, traditional, right? The ideal, I'm using air quotes, family is a two-parent, heterosexual, husband and wife family. They have 2.2 kids and they live in a single family house. The man works and the woman doesn't work. That is an image, but it is so vastly different than the reality of actual American families. Can you talk about what the real world looks like when it comes to families, like in terms of single mothers, in terms of working families and working parents. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So the first myth that I always like to dispel is the fact that stay-at-home moms and working moms are treated like they're different species, but in fact, they're usually the same person at different points in their life. Very few people who leave the workforce permanently. So you might, statistics look at a snapshot in a moment in time. So one person who is statistically a stay-at-home mom in one period of their life the next year is probably a working mom again, statistically speaking, because most families are who have two parents, both those parents work for pay. That's just the fact. The majority of mothers work. And that has been true for, I think, 40 years, but don't quote me on that because I don't have the statistics in front of me. So that's just factual. Again, there, there's been a huge rise in single parent families. So there's tons of families headed by a single mother. There's tons of fam many more families than there used to be that are two parent families where the mother is the primary breadwinner and earn out earns her husband. And that will continue to be a trajectory that we likely see because more women are graduating from college than men at this point. And so this idea that, and certainly the school year is predicated on the fact that there's someone there at 3 p.m. to pick up a child and someone there all summer to be with a child is just so wildly antiquated. And what we're seeing is a lot of increase in multi-generational living, which I actually think obviously not everyone gets along with their families and that's another story. But if you do have a good relationship with your extended family, that was one bright spot of the pandemic for my family was we live near my parents and we moved in with them for a couple of months when everything was shut down, just because if we hadn't, either me or my husband would have had to leave work for take a leave for some period of time because you cannot educate children and also work and also provide childcare 24 hours a day. It just, there's, you can't do it. It's impossible. And that was having that period of time all living together was a blessing. It was amazing. And I'm really grateful for it. And it made my kids even closer to their grandparents in a way that was beneficial to all parties involved. And yeah, there were certainly frustrations. Like I wasn't psyched to necessarily be a 38 year old living with her mom and dad, but there's conflict in every relationship. So overall, it was just such a amazing experience amid a very difficult time. That sounds, I think that was probably one of the reasons why I catapulted headfirst into burnout and had to put a bunch of projects on hold because we don't have immediate family around. And my husband and I are both entrepreneurs and we're both running companies. And we did it with a one-year-old and a three-year-old at home. So basically I would work from 4am to 8am and then he would work from 8am to 12. And after about a year and a half of that, I just melted. Like I couldn't no. even think straight. Of course and not. Yeah. It's not possible. And so that's actually one of my persistent questions for you in the back of my mind was like, how do you, how are you still thinking? Like, how do you still have clarity of thought? Like, I don't, one of the things <laughs> for being so straightforward, but also did you experience any burnout? Have you struggled throughout this? I love that you got to spend time with your family and also how did you do it? Okay. Oh God. Yes. I'm so burnt out right now. It's actually insane. Like I, my brain feels just 
like melting out of my ears. I starting in the, so starting March, 2020, March and April, I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. It clearly happened. Work got done. You can see things that I published. They exist on the New York Times website to this day. Do I remember how I got that work done? Absolutely not. I was dying. My parents also got COVID in March, 2020. So I was really afraid that my dad especially was going to die. So that was like also there. So March and April, I don't know how we did it. Our kids were seven and three at the time. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. We did it. It happened. (laughs) Then we moved in with my parents probably May or June of that year. And it got, everything got much better. They survived. They did not have seemingly super lasting damage that they, in retrospect, both had a couple symptoms of long COVID that did ultimately resolve. But starting when we had some help, it still was like my, our days were fractured and we were waking up really early and working weird hours and still having to do a bunch of childcare in the afternoon, but it was manageable. And so then Fall 2020 to early 21 was also really stressful because we came back to our apartment, which is not huge, and our kids were underfoot, but we had the little pod situation, but it was just so loud all the time, and there were so many children in the house that it was really hard to concentrate, and yet I we managed to do it. We don't have, we live in a two-bedroom, we have no office in the house. It was, we were just, my husband was taking calls from our closet and I was working in the bedroom part like that was that happened for six to eight months again the chronology of this is probably wrong but this is a rough accounting of the past two years meanwhile I'm also writing this book and so I worked six to seven days a week don't recommend it it was bad but it I did it and I would work on I would do reading for the book and then also do reporting calls for the book at night after my kids were asleep which is actually if you're calling if you're reporting and you're talking to other parents that is actually not the worst because they also have some free time after their kids are asleep so that right. it's the only time right that 8 to 9 p.m hour was very productive for me for a long time and then starting in the fall of 2021 things got back to more of a normal it wasn't like 100% but it was way more normal and my kids were back to school in a somewhat normal way and my husband started going into his office and so things got I think since then it's been doable and I took a book leave of two months over the summer of 2021 so then I was just working on the book and I didn't also have my day job but yeah I'm crazy burnt out I could, you know, most days I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to do all of the things that I have to do today. <laughs> so I don't have any advice beyond it all happened. We're all still standing. My kids seem to be doing pretty well. And I hope that at some point I work less hard. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have a plan? Because because you have a big book launch that you're in the middle of. Do you have a pl- any plan for rest or recovery like six months after the book launches? So I'm hoping, I knew that this fall was going to be really tough. Like I knew for a long time that the book was coming out. First, it was going to come out November 15th. And then we moved it back to December 6th. And I can't remember why there was a, a business or sales reason why they did that. And so I knew for a long time that it was coming out roughly November, December, and that this fall would be really challenging because we're also, my older daughter has to apply to middle school, which is a New York city specific annoyance that I will not go deeply into because it is so ridiculous, but it was another sort of logistical challenge. So all those things were immovable facts that we had to deal with. And I'm very organized. So I had that going for me, but I just knew that there would be a sort of unreasonable amount of work in the fall of 2022. And so hopefully I'm just pushing through till Christmas and hope. And once I'll take some time off around Christmas, and then I'm hoping in January, I can at least have a lot, the middle school stuff will all be done my book stuff will hopefully, I hope it's successful and people ask me to do more things, but I think I will have to say no to a lot more things just because there's only so many hours <laughs> a day. And I haven't, I'm hoping to maybe take a trip to visit my best friend from college who lives in North Carolina by myself. I haven't taken a trip by myself since. 2019, I took a work trip to Chicago. 
in like, wow. October 2019. That was the last time I took a trip alone. <laughs> so- I'm like, I wish like a in the middle of winter, I wish you get like a warm beach vacation, even if it's for two or three days. I hope that something like that is coming for you in the future. It's funny. Um, I I- want- Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I have a, a large capacity for sloth. I feel <laughs> I have two modes, which is like intense work and focus and then complete um, just dead on a bed watching Real Housewives. Like those yes. are the modes. I'm a very good yeah. napper, like <laughs> doom scrolling TikTok. <laughs> totally. I can do that all night long. So I don't want to make it sound like I never take time for myself because I absolutely do. And again, my parents are completely instrumental in helping this happen because they come every Sunday and I, the second they get through the door, I walk up to my bedroom and I take a nap. (laughs) Amazing. That can be life-changing. A weekly nap can be life-changing. It truly is. God bless them. And what's really special to me is like, the generational resonance of this because my mom also worked full time and we live near my maternal grandparents and we saw them once a week. So my parents are, my parents feel very deeply that they're like paying it forward, which is just amazing and very meaningful to me. I have one more just topic I want to ask you about, but I am mindful of time. Do you have a few more minutes where I can ask you? Okay. So I, I think that I want to turn to your career because I'm so curious about your career growth and changes throughout all of this. You, from what I understand from the outside, and I want you to tell me what I'm getting wrong here. You were leading a team to launch on parenting, this whole new vertical with the New York Times. And that launched, was it in 2018 that launched? 2019. 2019. I remember when that started to come out and there was a group of people. And I think it was pretty pivotal because um, did I don't know if the New York Times had a section on parenting before that. No, it was part, it, it sort of has moved around over the years, but they decided to put a bunch more resources towards that coverage and that has morphed over time and Part of the reason I wanted to shift towards opinion was because I felt like the coverage that was happening in the newsroom, they wanted to have it be more health focused and more service, straightforward service. And I've always felt that parenting as a topic can be so many things. It can be, it touches politics, it touches work, it touches economics, it it touches the family, it touches sociology. And I felt like being on opinion gave me a lot more allowance to bring all of those different disciplines into the topic and also not worry that I had to seem like I was not advocating for certain things like I'm very pro-choice and that's obviously been a huge issue in coverage over the past year. And so I don't have to have any neutrality about that topic and just things like I can say, right about how I think remote work has been really great for parents. And again, I don't have to worry like, oh, is this showing bias? And I take that very seriously. I take the news and opinion divide incredibly seriously and think news coverage should not show bias, but it has also in the type of writing that I feel compelled to do, it feels a lot more freeing to be on the opinion side of the ledger and be able to make clear where I stand on things. Can you explain that for people who don't know? What's the difference between the news and the opinion side? What does that mean? In the newsroom, it is very important that our articles do not show bias. And obviously we are, that doesn't mean that we are not telling the absolute truth about every topic. But if you're, say, writing about abortion, you need to give the pro, the anti-abortion point of view when you're writing about certain issues. And you can't make a case for a pro-abortion point of view because that's against the tenets of of a non-biased news source that you are getting sort of information from every side that you cover. And I still do a lot of reporting. So what happens in opinion is still reported, but it means that as the reporter, I am allowed to say, these are all the facts and here's what I think about them. 
So it's the, and here's what I think about them that makes something opinion. Whereas in the news side, you are just presenting an array of facts and you leave the reader to draw their own conclusions from them. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. I think that's been an interesting space, especially when you think about media and then you think about the reader and the consumer and whether or not they understand that. Yes, that is that they don't usually. (laughs) Right. It's hard because everything looks like it's on the New York Times app and it does say opinion, but you're like reading it and it's hard to know. I think if you're not well-versed in the language of media and the language of journalism. Absolutely. And my colleague, the Times and every other news organization really tries hard to label things to make clear to the reader. But also there's there's just so much media now. Everybody's just reading headlines or skimming. And because who has the time to read things all the time? So I don't blame anybody for missing whether something is an opinion article or it's a news article because it's, yeah. it's sometimes easy to miss. But we do go try our hardest to label things to be what they are. And what do you say, you, when you are thinking about becoming an opinion writer at the Times and you move from the working at Lenny before this and as a journalist at very, an editor at various places, do you have specific goals? Are you the kind of person that's, here's what I want to accomplish and this is what I hope with this role? What is it like for you in relationship to your career? So I don't have big five-year plans. For me, it's like, I want to be able to do the work I want to do in the way that I want to do it. That is what is important to me day to day and with the people that I want to work with. And so in terms of goals, in an ideal world, I would be able to change some people's minds. I would be able to make arguments, not just for people who agree with me, but that I would be able to inspire people who don't agree with me to change their position or at least consider a position that they don't already agree with considering our current political mode, I don't think that probably happens a lot. If it does, amazing. I would like, that would really make my day if someone said, oh, this really made me think differently about this issue. Second goal, which is very close to the first, is for the people to be seen, feel seen and understood by the things that I write about and to feel more confident in their lives and in their parenting and to feel less alone. So that's like a second tier writing goal for specifically the work that I do in the opinion section. The goal for the book, I think, was more explanatory to be more like, wow, can I curse on your podcast? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I was like, for the book, it was more like, wow, I've been noticing since I became a mother how completely fucked up everything is. And I want to understand why. Why is it like this? Where do these ideas come from? And so that was a really big goal of the book was just to explain to myself, like, where are all these terrible and contradictory ideas that have no bearing on the way most people live their lives? Why are they still with us? So it was, I wanted to answer that question. But then I also wanted to talk to so many different mothers and show their experiences and how these ideals are affecting them in their day-to-day lives. And to also offer some hope at the end and say, here are mothers who are doing amazing things. Here are activists who are working to change the world and to make American motherhood less stressful and punishing. And the book had a slightly different set of goals. If I change some people's minds who don't agree with me in the book, that's great. But I wouldn't say, I think that's more of a sort of top goal of my opinion work, if that makes Mm. sense. It makes a ton of sense. And I think I want to end by just reflecting back to you that one of the things I see in your work and one of the things that I think you've been very successful at, and I think why your work appeals to so many people is that you throughout it talk about feelings and acceptance and understanding, maybe not specifically by pointing to it, right? It's not like, I'm going to talk about feelings today, but by writing about them and writing about the complicated emotions that people have and highlighting them. And I don't like the word normalizing by bringing them up and out and giving them daylight and space. You allow for this concept, you write about it at the end of your book of ambivalence, the idea that it's okay to have complicated feelings. Like it's okay to not enjoy parts of motherhood it's okay to be angry and also love your kids. It's okay to not like your kids. There's nothing wrong with you. And the idea of a perfect mother is a total myth and a construct and also meant to 
basically keep you inside the house and out of power. The other thing that I think you've done really well and that you're a champion for is taking parenting and motherhood out of the cute corner section of the bookstore by bringing it to the opinion side and being on the front page. You're like, this is not a side issue. This is not a cute issue. This is not a separate section in the bookstore. This is life. Wow. That just made my day. So thank you. That is what I want to do. I, so I really appreciate that. I think, what do I think? I think the idea that mothers are still human is revelatory for some people. Yeah. (laughs) Because mothers are supposed to be angels, perfect angels of the house. And so I think that we are all just afflicted with the same human frailty that everybody else has to remember that and to recognize that is just really helpful day to day. And the other thing that is really important to me in my writing is to acknowledge there is not one way to parent. Nobody has it all figured out. It's all informed by our culture, our values. We don't all have the same values. And so as I spent more and more time on this beat, just really ran up against, I think, the limitations of advice because it's impossible to tell anything that is to tell people things that are one size fits all. It's not going to work for you and it works for one family is not going to work for another family. And that doesn't mean that anybody's doing it wrong. I think that's always the key. It's, I feel like a lot of advice is predicated on the idea that if you're not doing it this way, you're wrong. And that's just simply not true. In most cases, it's, oh, if you're not doing it this way, maybe this way just doesn't work for you and the kinds of kids you have and the kind of family you have. And so the longer I do this, the more I really push up against the limits of traditional advice that is written for a general audience. That doesn't mean that in your life and people who know the intimate details of your life and your culture can't give you good advice because I get good advice from my friends and my family constantly and from mental health professionals and medical professionals who know the details of our lives. But yeah, I find as a writer, the longer I do this, the more I find blanket general advice to be less and less useful. Does that make sense? Not only does it make a lot of sense, I'm smiling because one of the, so I run a community for mothers and one of our community guidelines is advice is like blankets and a blanket is good if someone knows that you're cold, but other, <laughs> oh my gosh, I they're love- worthless. So like our shorthand, our catchphrase is you have to actually wait until someone asks for a blanket and tells you they're cold. Otherwise you're not allowed to give advice because it's like smothering someone with 30 blankets that is hot already. So I just am smiling because like you, you are, there's just so much synchronicity in as much as like our core values at the company I'm building is there's no right way to parent. We use the words in my experience and we don't give advice. So I'm just really happy to hear you say this. And it's, this is a topic for another podcast. I could talk to you for so much longer. I think there's so much in here about like how our brains work and how we think psychologically, because it's so much easier to collapse into a binary and to shame someone else for being wrong and be like, oh my God, I need the one piece of advice. I need the answer. I need the solution. And it's much harder to hold the complexity of, oh, My sister is a single mom and she lives in a studio. And of course she didn't sleep train. She did co-sleeping. It made the most sense. And I did sleep training and that was totally right for me. And to your point earlier, like when you said the working mom and the stay-at-home mom are the same person, like you might breastfeed your first child and formula feed your second child. We have to make space for that to be okay. And also just to, I, I don't, I just never understand why anyone is compelled to tell anyone else, especially strangers, how to live their lives. Like, why? What's it to you? What I do? (laughs) Like, I don't get it. And I also think that what so many people expressed to me in the book was not only did they feel bad about certain things, but then they felt bad about feeling bad. Oh, double arrow. I know the compa- the sort of compound nature of these feelings that it's like, oh, you're being made to feel guilty because you didn't do X thing that someone else said was so important. I think it's also because of these ideals that are so present in all of our lives. It's hard for us to accept 
that actually for a lot of stuff with their kids, we don't have control and it doesn't mean anything. Mm. Like whether or not, I still, I quote this in the book. There is a piece that my former mentor, current friend, Hannah Rosen wrote in the Atlantic in 2009 about breastfeeding. And she has this thing about how, if you look at your child's second grade class, you can't pick out the kids who were breastfed and who were formula fed. Like you don't know because it doesn't matter that much. Like it matters a little around the edges, but you can't control everything. And you want to have that illusion of control because it's actually comforting because it's, of course, you only want the best for your children and you want them to be happy all the time. And so that it's a, it's such a seductive idea that if you just do enough, you can make your kids perfectly happy and successful. And I think that's why it is we can't let go of the idea because it's seductive. Yes. Oh, if I only am perfect and do everything right, then my kids will be blessed for their whole lives. Yeah, that sounds great. Why, like, why wouldn't anyone want to do that for their kids? But when you look at all the, I think it's easier to have perspective when you're not a brand new parent. My kids are now almost 10 and six. And so I can see, oh, all that stuff that I thought was super important when they were three months old, most of it did not end up mattering. True. 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 And if you're listening with a three month old and you're sobbing, like we have been there with you, like there it's yes. Jessica Gross, where can people buy your book? Where can they find your book and where can they follow you or read more from you on the internet? My book will be everywhere starting December 6th. So Amazon, your local bookseller, all of the places. I think it will also be in airports, which is weirdly a goal of mine like I just want to go to an airport and see my book (laughs) which is maybe pathetic but that's okay no that's an amazing (laughs) goal (laughs) so I think it'll be there too and then newyorktimes.com they can follow me on twitter if twitter still exists when this comes out at Jess Gross, and my last name is spelled G-R-O-S-E, which is unusual. And then on Instagram, which I think will definitely still be around, it's at Jess Gross Writes. So J-E-S-G-R-O-S-E-W-R-I-T-E-E. Wait, did I just misspell the word writes? W- W-R-I-T-E-S. Right. I'll put the links in the show notes for everyone. I'm going to put a plug in for buying books. I always do this. People know that I feel this way. A lot of people don't buy books because they don't think they'll have time to read them. That's not why I buy books. I buy books because I want to support the ideas that I want to be out in the world. So if you listen to this podcast and you think that these are ideas that more people need to hear, and you know that I don't have enough time to read it, buy the book because that helps the book spread. You can buy it for your local coffee shop. I like to be a book fairy. I buy books and then I drop them off the coffee shop. They're very feminist and I have an agenda about the books that I drop off, which is, I think, wonderful. But buy a book to support someone who has spent years of their life writing a book. It can cost you under $25. You can make somebody else's life and you can support the work of spreading ideas in the world. I have a, as you would say, strong opinion about this. Oh my God, bless you. Bless you for that. I always (laughs) joked, I joke to my friends. I'm like, I don't care if you read this book, but I do care if you buy it. You can use it for kindling. I don't care. Just get me. (laughs) (laughs) You have to buy it so that I can continue to write books. Buy it, give it to your local library. Buy it, give it to a friend. If you would have coffee or you would benefit from having lunch, with a person that wrote a book, I think you should buy it for them as a way of saying like, I would take you out to lunch if our, our paths crossed. I have a strong opinion about this. So people listening, buying books is just such a kindness. I, you have seen, people who've seen me on Instagram, you know how many books I have in my house and you know that like I risk running out of wall space for bookshelves, but books are one of my love languages and you can pay it forward by buying books, especially from women writers that we need to hear more from. So with that, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for taking all this extra time. Thank you for joining the podcast and good luck to you for this book launch. Oh my gosh. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me in for such a delightful conversation. 
If you've ever been awake late at night scrolling Google to figure out whether or not that rash is an allergy or a new virus, or you're trying to figure out how to get an appointment with a lactation consultant but you can't find any in your area, and you feel like screaming, oh my goodness, I just need someone to tell me what this is, you are not alone. Motherhood today is really hard, it's hard to get answers, and it's hard to find people to help us. Plus, it seems like no matter what choices you make as a new mom, somebody somewhere will always tell you that you're doing it wrong. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about OathCare. OathCare is the sponsor of this episode, and they are dedicated to changing the way we support new and expecting parents. You shouldn't have to go to Google or Reddit or Facebook forums to try to wade through and find an answer, and you shouldn't have to wait weeks to get a doctor's appointment or spend hundreds of dollars on concierge specialty services. OathCare is pretty cool. They envision a new model of healthcare that's rooted in community, and they want to improve the health of all families. So the way they do that is they provide complete support for mothers experiencing fertility, pregnancy, and pediatric journeys. When you download the app, you will be connected to your own care team. So you get a stage-based specialist, somebody who knows exactly the stage you're in. You get a mental health therapist and a trained parent guide. And they're available in one chat room to answer any and all questions you have seven days a week. Plus, they have additional specialists like sleep consultants and lactation consultants so that if you have a question that they don't know how to answer, they'll bring that person in to help you. When you join Oath, you are put into one of their four stage-based communities. So you're either put into the pregnancy stage, the postpartum and infant stage, the toddler stage, or the young child stage. And that way you'll be matched with a community of other mothers that are also going through those same experiences. Instead of wading through the judgment of hundreds of different online threads, you can go to a place where there are experts that you can trust with the wisdom of other mothers in a kind, positive, safe community. They just launched. I just downloaded the app. I've been going through it. They just launched recently and it is so beautiful. I really love it when our sponsors are such a good fit for our community. I think that people listening are going to love it. So check out the show notes. I'll put the link in there. It's Oath, O-A-T-H, like the Hippocratic Oath. You can download it at oathcare.com or it's available in the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. You can download it and be one of their very first members and go get the help and the support that you need. 